0: Hello, welcome to another episode of the Beatles Books Podcast with me, Joe Wisby. I'm joined today by author and journalist Tom Doyle to discuss his 2013 book, Man on the Run. Starting with the painful disintegration of the Beatles, this book examines McCartney's fascinating journey through the 70s, from drug busts to world tours via a series of brilliant, if occasionally baffling, albums. Tom Doyle, hello and welcome to the Beatles Books Podcast. How are you?
1: I'm very good, not bad at all.
0: Good, thanks for joining us in particular to talk about Man on the Run, which uh, is a book which is five, six years old now. Does it it feel like that amount of time has gone past?
1: Uh, I picked it up for the first time today in a long time, and what's strange is it actually feels like somebody else wrote it. Okay, it's kind of weird, you know, because I mean, obviously I can remember uh, writing bits of it, obviously, right? but then there's other bits that I just can't remember writing whatsoever. So it's, and that's strange. I mean, it's like the first book that I wrote was about Billy McKenzie from the Associates and I had to pick that up earlier this year. And that really was like somebody else had written it. So yeah, it's a bit a strange feeling, actually. Yeah, I mean, it's good when you start flicking through and you go, it's all right, actually.
0: Well, it's definitely all right. Um, you, you start the book with a description of, the, of an encounter that you had with with Paul. I was wondering if you could just run through a little bit of what that was like, whether that was how you expected, was he what you thought he, he'd be like? And was it that that led you to write Man on the Run?
1: Well, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, actually, as an aside, right, yes. uh, I mean, I had started interviewing bands and stuff like that when, when I was dead young, really young, 1984. So I was 17 at the time. And so I'd done, obviously, loads of interviews by this point. But the only time that I'd been majorly starstruck right, was in 1991. I went to Dublin to interview David Bowie, who was in Tim Machine at the time. His stock was incredibly low, blah, blah, blah. And it was one of those things where when I was interviewing, I was fine. And then when I was hanging about this video shoot, right, I was really nervous. And he was coming up and like bumming fags off me and stuff like that. And I just kept on thinking. Stinking very me, stay me. And I, I went back to the hotel room and thought he could tell that I was really nervous. And I was just like some, you know, spluttery fan or something like that. And if it's physically possible to kick your own arse, I did. Right? And I thought I will never be Star again because I'm not able to do my job properly. Fast forward, obviously, right? You can tell what's going to happen here, right? Fast forward, 2006, right? The first time that I interviewed McCartney, and it's, it's due to happening a, a photographer studio in Kentish Town, which is just down the road from me. So that's kind of surreal as well. It's like McCartney's in my hood. And I was nervous, and I had to go for two pints beforehand in a really rough Irish bar around the corner, right? And then have some peppermints or whatever so that I wasn't sminking of gin as Paul would say, you know, and so that calmed it, right, and I I managed not to show that I was nervous and stuff. And in a book, in the book I do describe the fact that he was really distracted though, I mean he was really laid back and sort of he, whatever, which is kind of his natural demeanor and stuff like that, but he kept on looking at his watch and all this sort of stuff. And it was only when I asked him a question about do you ever miss a spliff, right? right? And he started going on about Heather, right? And he was going, well, you know, since we got together with Heather and all this sort of stuff, you know. And it was just the way they said it, right? And there'd been reports that weekend in the papers, right, that they were due to divorce or whatever. Okay. I wasn't particularly interested in that. I'm not a tabloid reporter, obviously. Um, but the way that he said it, I thought, I wonder if he's distracted because this is true. And two days later, he's probably Stuart made the announcement and stuff like that. So I could tell he'd been distracted, right? And obviously, I'd been not nervous, but I was just, I, I was sort of failing to grab his attention, I thought, right? And it was good, it was brilliant, met Paul McCartney. Ace, you know. Um, And then it was 16 months later, I only remember that because I wrote to the book today, that I was invited to go to MPL to his office, right? And this time I thought, right, I'm going to actually go in there and be a lot looser, a bit cheekier. Uh, And it really worked. It really worked. You know, it seemed to just loosen him up and stuff like that. And I think it was either in that interview I think it was that interview, or it was maybe the the follow-up one, which was in the same location, maybe a week later or something. Mm -hmm. I was talking to him about the 70s. We were talking about the 70s because he had like a DVD compilation thing had come out or whatever. And it it was a light bulb moment, right? Because it was kind of like, I just thought the narrative around him in the 70s is always in big biographies and is sort of glossed over, it's like he was in The Beatles and then he was in Wings, you know, <clears> which are like seen as an afterthought or a joke. But this whole other thing started, you know, because it was like, wow, he was actually a bit of a renegade, you know, stoned at his head for the entire decade and quite, I mean, he was quite upfront about that. I mean, particularly Linda was obviously pro-pop and all this sort of stuff and trying to drive that narrative and stuff. And I, you know, I just thought there's a whole story that hasn't been written about this. That yeah. was that he was a renegade or whatever. I've told my mate about this in the pub. i thinking about writing this book, you know, these interviews that I've done. And explained, I said, it's almost like a travelogue, like we're almost following him around the world. And he went, man on the run. And he came up with the title, right? Yeah. And one of my friends, Dory Linsky, who's another author, mm-hmm. he came up with the same title maybe about three weeks later in the pub. I said, ah, <laughs> good. <to meet> you. <laughs> so, yeah, it did actually happen during an interview. I thought there is a moral story to this. And mm. because obviously, you know, I mean, there's so many Beatles books. But then we're, we're really fascinated still by all this stuff. And so to find an angle on something... Is quite rare, and I thought that's mm. interesting. That's interesting. So that's when it, it first started pulling together the idea.
0: So we we start in 1970 essentially, and and Paul's at quite a low ebb, isn't he? You know, he's the, the kind of general theme is that the Beatles have gone their separate ways, and, and he's in this. I think he has called it a depression, isn't he? You know, it is it is definitely a a, um, a kind of low point for him. Why do you think that of the four of them? he took that split the worst. They were all in that band. They all, you know, they all went through the exact same stuff, all those same highs, but he was the one that retreated, didn't he, really? You know, he, he kind of hid away in, in Scotland. What do you think it was about the split that affected Paul the most?
1: I think it's mainly because, obviously, after uh, Epstein died, he held the band together. Now obviously they they resented that in loads of ways right and I mean if you look at him and his demeanor right from that point right he seems a bit cocky doesn't he you know. Now I mean obviously fair enough man right he's on a roll and all that sort of stuff but I think his identity was really wrapped up in the band right and if you look at John John's joined a new band, which is called John and Yoko, right? So he's got a new art project, music project, blah, 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 that revolves around him and his wife, right? Now, this is obviously before McCartney started this idea too. You look at George, George has just got stockpiled tunes, and it, you know, and it really is just like a flood that's coming out, right? And Ringo is Ringo, who basically at that point, right, just seems to be pretty keen to have a laugh with these mates and get drunk and make some... Happy go lucky records, doesn't it? You know? So I think Paul at that point, I mean, because the Beatles, I mean, it must have been the best job in the world. And being Paul McCartney in the Beatles must have been the best job, really, in being the Beatles, you know, because I mean obviously Lennon sort of tussles with a lot of Mm -hmm. the time. Whereas McCartney looks like he's in his element. And maybe that's what maybe we're reading the cockiness thing wrong. Maybe Paul's just really enjoying himself, you know and being in the band in the later period and stuff like that so i think that's why i think it was such a loss to him and also a failure it's like i didn't keep the band together. Yeah, yeah
0: yeah that's a so great point so yeah all that. i think um if we could obviously the 70s starts album wise with sort of a, of a, a double header with mccartney and and ram um both of those albums were I don't want to say pilloried at the time, but they certainly attracted some quite negative reviews. Um, since then, obviously, on the back of this kind of archive collection that that Paul has been very slowly uh, releasing, they're now seen as maybe you know in his top in the top five of his releases. Um, what do you think changed about the perception of of those two records as as time's gone on?
1: I think you've got to see them in the context of the times at first, right now. I mean. You know, obviously, let it be, you know, rough around the edges and all that sort of stuff. But you listen to Abbey Road and the White Arm, it's slick stuff, Mm. right? It's really slick. And McCartney comes out, and it's just a sort of weird hodgepodge, you know. I mean, I'm sure if I'd have had that album at that age, I'd have thought, what the hell is this? And I think a lot of people did. And Ram, similarly, just seems to be a bit old, you know what I mean? It's like, you know, it's just an old record, isn't it? Mm. And very, very different, really. To the Beatles stuff. So I mean and I think the reason that critically now they are seen as being great writers is because of the fact that he was pushing things forward. I mean you know McCartney basically, that album invents lo-fi doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. It invents lo-fi. right? I mean you listen to the beta band right and it does sound like McCartney you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, uh, And Ram obviously now when we listen to it um, particularly that sort. I remember talking to him, I remember saying, were you trying to do something different from the, from the Beatles? And he said, absolutely. And I think that episodic thing is definitely there. That's all over Vram, actually. Yeah. But it's still an odd record, isn't it? I mean, it's still very much an odd record. But I think as, as time's gone on, we can look back at this and rather than go, these records sound like half-baked failures, which is what I think people thought at the time. Yeah. I think this is a guy who's uh, pushing things forward and still trying to find his way. Yes. That's the thing, still yeah. trying to find his way. Right? So yeah. I think that's why we'll look back on those writers with affection. And also, the other thing about them is he wasn't really trying to have hits. Was uh, there really? Was there, you know? I no. mean, I mean, there was obviously, there the, the, the would be one track on each album that was the obvious hit, but apart from that, Mm. This is not a guy, right, that's trying to get to the top of most of the popper most anymore. You know, I mean, this is a guy who's experimenting, you know? So I think that's why we we'll like them. We'll listen back to them and the sound ace and well, short, fascinating. They're brilliant. Yeah.
0: I think that first um, album, you know, uh, if you take off every night and maybe i'm amazed from it which i think he recorded later on anyway i mean you know they're the two obvious commercial you know sounding songs on that album. if you take away those two and you're left with things like kreen Corey and you know Ooh you and stuff then yeah as you say that's that's the beta band but uh, you know 25 years earlier you know after that then he comes to this decision to form a band he decides to, to form a band, which, which neither of the other three really decide to do. Uh, obviously, John's kind of plastic harrowing a band is really only a conceptual idea. Um, neither of the, you know, he was never going to go around and be John and then and the somethings, you know. What do you think, or did you get any sense from the conversations that you had in, in, in the research that you did when you spoke to, to people from Wings? What do you think was the main reason behind him deciding to, to kind of start Wings?
1: I think it's dead simple, really. He missed being in a band. He just missed being in a band, you know. And being in a band's great, right? I mean, I've been in a lot of bands. Nobody's heard of any of them, you know what I mean? But it's great fun just with your mates making a loud noise, you know what I mean, in a rehearsal studio or whatever, or doing gigs. It's just great. So he did talk about the fact that he had thought about doing a supergroup, because obviously he could have pulled people in to do that and stuff like that. But then he thought about the sort, and it's always a crap word, but organic way. I'm not sure he used that word, but, you know, the way that the Beatles came together, you know, kids on buses, basically, right? So that was it, right? And I mean, basically, I don't think he wanted known musicians or whatever, Obviously, he'd known Denny Lane, so he pulled him in and then started of pulled the others bit by bit. But I think that's really what it was, you know? Okay. And yeah, I mean, just wanted to make a racket with some new mates, basically. <laughs> I think it's no more complicated than that.
0: Uh, but of course, this lineup, uh, which is obviously Paul and uh, Denny Lane, and that you mentioned, uh, Denny Sywell and Henry McCullough, they primarily play on uh, wildlife and red Row speedway obviously henry's not featured on wildlife um but that's it that's the only two records that this kind of setup uh produce um and then relatively swiftly before we get to band on the run which is only 73 if you think wildlife comes at end of 71 suddenly uh, henry and denny they're gone they're, they're not in the picture anymore what did you find out about why that was such a short-lived kind of lineup
1: Well, I mean, I spoke to Denny Sidewell, and I spoke to Henry as well, and it was dead simple as well. It was money. It was just money, right? And if you look at uh, Paul's finances at the time, I mean, all the the Beatles, you know, because the money was all tied up, right? I mean, it's like Lennon with The Lost Weekend. I mean, he was skint. I mean, he was skint. He was living on a company advance, you know, and, and basically sofa surfing and stuff like that. So, yeah, I mean, they just moaned about the money, basically. I remember Henry saying, you know, that's not tight, that's welded. (laughs) I don't think there was creative differences at that point, you know. I think it really was just money. Yeah.
0: did you get any sense from either of them that they regretted that? That obviously wings then went on to have huge success. Was there any sense that they thought, ah, this is an error?
1: Uh, I think maybe with Dennis Sidwell there was a bit of that, but it is what it is, isn't it? You know. Yeah. Uh, well, Henry had a big dust up with him, didn't he? So there wasn't. A, yes. there was no going back from that, you know, and Henry liked a, a bit of a booze, didn't he? You know, so he, and had that sort of fiery. Northern Irish thing going on. I mean, it was a real good laugh, actually. Yeah, I think, you know, I mean, obviously fogged on the drink when the rest of them were fogged on the puff, you know what I mean? So it's like there's maybe just different drugs happening there a wee bit as well, you know? Uh, But yeah, I mean, I think it's one of those ones. Also, it's hard, isn't it? You know, because, I mean, Paul's Paul, right? And this is, I mean, I suppose we'll come to this later, but the creative differences thing, it's just like, well, I mean, he is McCartney, you know, so he should have the... The final creative say. Let's let's say you know, but yeah, uh, yeah. but then I mean, Henry did that amazing solo, "My Love," and all that sort of stuff. Do you know what I mean? Right? And yeah. I remember him being particularly proud still at that moment, right, because he stood up to Paul basically. To be fair, Paul had given him his head. You know, I mean, they're playing with an orchestra. It's like right, go and rip it a solo. You know, and he played it off the top of his head and. I mean, there's pro- there was probably regret, wasn't there later, you know, but I didn't okay. get the, a massive sense of that,
0: actually. Okay, uh, so as I mentioned, after Red Rose Speedway uh, is completed and then wings, you know, shed, as you say, for those mainly financial reasons, those two members, Band on the Run happens uh, and, you know, your book is excellent in detailing the slightly wild adventures that that Paul, Linda and Denny uh, undertake in, in Lagos and, and elsewhere really, uh, over the, the last 25, 30 years, Band on the Run is probably still Wing's most respected record. It is, it's the one that uh, generally seen to be the, the strongest, although that narrative is changing, as I said, with the release of these archive editions. What do you think the reason for that was? Band on the Run is, you know, listen to it now, do you think it's a hugely stronger record than, you know, Ram and Revero et etc.?
1: No, I don't, right? But what I think it has is it has the hits, it's right, got yeah. big tunes on it, right? And I mean that's what had really been missing, right, from the other records. I mean, look, you know, you, you, I mean to say that we I mean, got maybe amazing what my love, and all this sort of stuff, but they're not Jet, are they? You know what I mean? And they're not Band on the Run, right? Yeah. So, and I mean that's it with those two, right? I mean, and they were big hits, also really iconic cover, dead memorable. I mean, it's the most iconic cover that he'd had, record cover that he had. Since Sarge Pepper probably, you know, or Abbey Road, I suppose, you know. So it's one of those ones that it stood out. I'm sure, right? As you were flicking through the the racks, and in fact, I know it did right because I mean, it, I just to flick through those racks as a kid. And it was always like, ooh, that's cool. And they're sort of, you know, escaped convicts and all. <laughs> that's Michael Parkinson, you know, it's... So I, I really think that's what it is. I mean, I think as a whole, the records, I mean, there's some brilliant tunes on I mean, Bluebird's Ace. But yeah, I mean, it, it's one of those ones, isn't it? If you've got like two big hits on a record, then it's going to sell, isn't it, you know? So I think that's, that's why it was so big at the time, actually. I mean, I don't think it's, it's sort of like, oh, you know, he stopped being weird or something like that. I just think there was a couple of really big hits that would have been... I mean, it's always tempting to snip up those solo albums mentally, isn't it? And, yeah, yeah. And I saw it recently, actually. Somebody put up a, a cover for uh, a fake Beatles album, you know, The Beatles' Imagine. Okay. And it was great. You know, so you do imagine, obviously, right? What would have been on it? And you just think, there would have still... You know, made killer right <laughs> you know, for, until probably about 75. Yeah. <laughs> and then it would have gone you know, belly up. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, so I think that's the secret to Band on the Run, really. And obviously recorded in, in incredibly trying circumstances, you know, going on this holiday, you know, think, oh, it would be great, man, you know. <laughs> early yeah. 70s, you know what I mean? Like, hashy you know, fogged ideas. It's like, oh, I've got a Nigeria, man. It'd be great, you know, and the music will be brilliant. And mm. we you get there, you know, it's monsoon season. The studio's not built. He has a panic attack, you know, at the microphone. Felicity's, you know, basically threatening to kill him or whatever it was, you know. So. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Apart from that, it was plain sailing, wasn't it? Yeah, you know,
1: exactly. Was it? Yeah, yeah, that's it. You, know.
0: you speak in the book, uh, one of my particular highlights for me is, is when you talk about uh, the time that John... Lennon spent with Paul in the in in America in that kind of '74 period when John is is with May Pang and they spend some time. There's some photos that have come out, you know, in the past of, of John and Paul together. Um, obviously, there's a lot of talk about how close John and Paul got to writing together um recording together obviously there is the the toot and the snore bootleg of the very very out of it recording of, the, of them with Stevie Wonder which is uh, barely worth talking about in in my view but but hey it's it's there for significance did you get a sense when you were writing the book of of how close they got to each other in that period were they was it ever really on? You know, never mind George and Ringo so much. You know, did did you think that the time that they spent together could have led on to any kind of songwriting kind of collaboration?
1: I think the closest that they got. I mean, I talked to May Pang actually a few years ago, right? And I think the closest that they got was when Paul invited John down to New Orleans, right, for the Venus and Mars thing. And I think that I mean, John apparently had said to May Pang how would you feel right, if I got back together with Paul right, and did some right, and recording together? And she obviously went, I think it'd be great, blah, 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 like this. right? But the fact that he had to ask that right, reveals that he was unsure. And I've seen other quotes from Lennon about Beatles reunions and stuff like that where he said, yeah, but would it have been that great? Because, and McCartney says the same thing. It's just like it was a kind of perfect little package of records that they made right which is one of the reasons actually like they let it be for years didn't become it you know the film because I mean it's funny years ago I was watching a bootleg or whatever and my kid was really wee at the time and she said is that the Beatles and I said yeah yeah and she said the sound out of a tune she
0: right? was sort of right yeah <laughs> said, well there
1: you go that's what it is right out the mouths of babes and all that sort of stuff and that's the thing that I got from McCartney as well was that there was this sense that it's like you know we're just gonna ruin it doing this and obviously the other problem was that See, I think if they'd have got back together it wouldn't have been for any of these big million, multi-million dollar sort of things it would have been to be that great wee band in the studio that they sort of all missed I think but the problem was they all missed it at different times and so they never quite sort of converged on that right but I mean just to speculate I mean I think it would if I had John lived it would definitely have happened Right, so I think it definitely right. would have happened. I think it definitely would have happened at Live Aid. It's bound to have happened, isn't it? They're a headline Live Aid man. You know?
0: The two that I think might have happened, we're going to go on a tangent now. But hey, why not? The two that I think might have happened. Yeah, Live Aid is one. But my my theory with Live Aid is I've got a couple of theories about Live Aid. One is that George is grumpy and says no, so it's just it's just John and Paul. Or that John does the uh, the US leg of Live Aid does the Philadelphia gig, headlines that, and Paul headlines that one. That's my live A theory. The other one, the other good one... one that's,
1: that's a good a, one, man. It's
0: okay. It's <laughs> okay. The other one that I think w- that it would have happened would have would have been that rock and roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony in 87. Like. I think that might have got them, and they would have gone up and they would have done, you know... What, what would they have sung? Would they have just sung like "Long Tall Sally" or something, or would they have sung "Shelby Fields"? They would have
1: Fields? definitely done that one because, bloody hell, they could never get away from that. Too, right? <laughs> they, they, they went, went with they that, that one. Get away from that one either, right? So, show the roots. They would have probably done that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Or, I mean, I
1: saw Lennon going, yeah. I'd get together, you know. I'd get together with him and do all that Hey Jude stuff as well. So Hey Jude would definitely be in there. You know, yeah, I yeah. Mean, I'd even do Hey Jude. Is basically what he was saying.
0: Or would it? Or would John have done the anthology? That other one. By the time you get to the nineties, would John have been happy to look back? You know, who knows? We'll never I know. I
1: think I think so. Actually, right. You can't remember how low the stock was as well in the eighties. <laughs> the stock was really low. I mean. There were not even really an influence on people and stuff like that at that time, apart from bloody tears for fears, you know what I mean? It's, you forget how low, and actually just as an aside again, right, which you can snip it if you want. No, no, um, not at all, not at all. It was, I, I was working at Smash Hits in the late 80s, right? And having been a Beatles obsessive as a kid and stuff like that, even I'd sort of moved on and forgotten about it all, right? And we got an invitation in 89. And I can't remember what the theatre was. But it was like, oh, do you want to go and see Paul McCartney? He's doing this thing in a the theatre, right? At lunchtime or whatever. And so I was like, yeah, whatever. It was a free drink sort of thing. You know what I mean? It really was that thing. It wasn't like, wow, let's go. It was like, yeah, yeah it's only 10 minutes down the road. Let's give it a, a look. So we got down there. And it was obviously, it was Flowers in the dirt, And he's playing tunes from that and stuff like that. And then he did things we said today. Wow. And suddenly got this big rush. It was like, the Beatles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like I just remember, you know what I mean? And it, I suppose, that just illustrates the fact that their stock was so low, and it wasn't mm. really until the nineties when the anthology and Oasis, obviously, yeah. right, that this sort of canonization of the Beatles happens. You know, because after, you know, before that, really, they were seen as being kind of old hat.
0: It's it's funny because I, I was lucky enough to do have, do an interview with. Um... David Hepworth and Mark Ellen for the words in your attic thing. And they were talking about Q, which obviously is a magazine that you know well. And of course, on that first issue of Q, Paul McCartney on the front cover and they were saying that was pretty rare, you know, to put Paul McCartney on the, in 86 on the back of things like Give My Regards to Broad Street and you know, Press to Play and stuff. That was unheard of, you know. He'd
1: have never got a cover elsewhere, really. He wouldn't, know, You know, I mean, it's smart to think it. Right? But, I mean, the NME wouldn't have put him on the cover at that time. There's no chance, you know. No. That's why Q, I mean, you know, obviously... McCartney had a great relationship with Q. I mean, <clears> you two had a great relationship with Q, you know, because these that magazine was writing about them, right, when nobody else would, really. I mean, yeah. You know, you two would be writing about an NME, but only a slag em. <laughs> you know, It's yeah. true, isn't it? You know, yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah. And also Q was the first one that kind of would interview people about the past so they would go and do a dylan or a springsteen interview and it wouldn't just be about the new album it would be tell us about the 60s bob or whatever you know which was you exactly.
1: know which kind of cements legends doesn't it you absolutely
0: know? absolutely anyway talking about cementing legends let's get back to paul mccartney <laughs> um so after band on the run that that leads into um I suppose you call it Peak Wings, wouldn't you? Wings 76, the lineup with Joe English and Jimmy McCullough. Um, humongous Wings Over America tour. Those two big records, Venus and Mars, Wings at the Speed of Sound, which, uh, you know, have their faults, But again, like you say, both of them have got big hits on Listen to What the Man Said, Silly Love Songs, Let Them In, big songs, you know. Something I got from your book, that, from rereading it this weekend, uh, is the... Jimmy McCullough and Joe English, both quite um, unusual characters, both quite wild characters. You know, Wings were seen as this kind of cosy, especially by the mid-70s, cosy family band, you know, the kids on the tour bus and stuff. But both of them, you know, particularly Jimmy, had their demons. That that, that just really surprised me. What do you think it was about this lineup that led them to be the most successful?
1: Well, I think... In terms of, I mean, mean, bands are a strange sort of alchemy anyway, aren't they? You know, so I think it just came together. I mean, Jimmy's a brilliant guitarist. Jimmy Mm. was a great guitarist, rather. And I mean, Joe English, great drummer, you know. So, uh, and Paul's definitely got his game on at this point, right? And he's writing these big tunes and stuff like that. And really, I mean, I think it's just who knows how or why these, these things happen or whatever but the, uh, that was definitely the best lineup with the band because they were just, I mean, you can see it in the live footage and stuff like that. They're really tight knit. And, uh, you know, obviously there's, there's things going on, drinking drugs and stuff like that in the background, right, with uh, Jimmy and Joe. But on stage, they're dead slick, aren't they? You know, yeah, got yeah. all these tunes now and stuff like that. And he's starting to slip in Beatles tunes and stuff <laughs> like that, you know. So it's, I think for him, see, this is the other thing in, that I suppose in the book, the, the, the parts of his character that I was surprised about were, and I know he hates this, right, but it's his eccentricity. He does, you know, because actually, I, I mean, I have no idea if he's read the book. I mean, I know that he, he sort of gently endorsed it by giving us the cover imagery and all this sort of stuff. There's been other signs down the years and stuff, like that, but I've never talked to him about it. Okay. He did actually have a go, at well, one time at me about talking about Kanye West and he was going, yeah, everybody says he's eccentric. Do you know what I mean? Eccentric, but that's because people don't understand it artists right that's what they're like that's what they're like right so his eccentricity was one of the things that I thought but that the the thing that brings us back to this point was the doubt okay right so there's loads of doubt in the early 70s really and you that's the complete opposite right of the sort of you know the doe eye boy you know what I mean giving it hey Jude or long and winding road into the camera you know but yeah so I think the doubt had started to fade and obviously, right, this is the massive moment of vindication, right? Because he's in the the massive band, right? That you know, that rules the sixties. And then he's basically on his arse for a few years mm. and then he's back up, right, in the arenas in America and stuff in and the stadium and, and all this. I think they only did one stadium gig. Okay. So, you know, they're doing all the arenas, you know, when they sold out Madison Square Garden, which I think he said like this is the everything's been leading up to this. By that he he didn't mean, you know, breaking up the you know, the breakup of the Beatles and all that sort of stuff. He meant basically everything that I've done since has been leading up to this point. So massive vindication, right? So that is the peak. But then you've got the problem, right? I mean, obviously, Joe's got his problems with drugs. Uh, Jimmy's, you know, a bit like Henry, actually. You know, yeah. the with one hand on the whiskey bottle sort of thing, right? And, you know, they have this punch-up backstage at one gig and stuff like that, you know? and Obviously, I mean, Mac is a bit of a slugger as well, so... <laughs> <laughs> i'm not sure I, th- I think if i was taking bets i think if i was casually sitting in the corner of that d- dressing room taking bets i'd have put money on paul and yeah we as well wasn't it, it was wee? really small wasn't it yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 so yeah i mean and that's the, the uh, as you say rightly that's the the peak and mm. then from that point it starts to fade away a wee bit again yeah
0: i mean it's interesting 76 if you look at where the other three are what they're doing you know you've got john that's, that's essentially i don't want to say given up as that might be controversial but you know he, he's handed his, he's hung up his uh his guitar for for the foreseeable ringo is ringo and and george is you know if you look at his u.s tour from 74 um you know i was lucky enough to speak to graham thompson about uh about george and on the back of his book and he was like yeah I mean, it was it wasn't quite a disaster but it was a long way from wings over america um yeah. so yeah paul is prime but as you say uh, things start to go a little bit awry after uh, 76 and they decide the next decision that Paul and, and them make is to record the next record on a Caribbean cruise which is uh, an interesting an interesting decision uh, I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about what you found out about those sessions uh, which was not you know which was a long way from Abbey Road did they lead Did the nature of those sessions lead to to Jimmy and Joe heading toward the exit door?
1: Actually, I don't think it was those sessions because actually when you look at the photographs of them, I mean, so basically what they do is they go to the Virgin Islands and they rent three boats. One of them is for Paul and Linda and the family. One of them is sort of catering and where the band are staying and one of them is a studio. And it sounds amazing, really. You know, so they would take these boats around and then just sort of park them up, you know, and swim between the, the, you know, so swim to the studio in the morning. So (laughs) no, I think it was quite an idyllic thing. I think it, it, basically, what the band on the run idea had been. Let's make an album on holiday, and obviously it had been a disaster apart from the music, which was brilliant. Uh, This worked right in terms of being an idea. Uh, and the thing is it's a weird record London Town you know because I mean I bought it when it came out when I was a okay. kid right and I was a wee bit disappointed and I loved you know uh, with a lot luck and I really like title track and stuff and there's a couple of tunes on it that are pretty good and stuff like that but the, the thing I think it's a deceptive record you know because you've got the three of them on the cover London Town right? mm. it doesn't tell you anything about the music really which is your rock Apparently they were going to call it Water Wings, right, which would, is a pretty crap title, right? But it would have described it a bit better, right? And no, I don't think that had an impact on it. I think the reason that the pair of them left, I mean, obviously with Joe, he, he's got his, you know, he's hiding a drug habit, basically, right, which is a tough thing to do if you're in such a high-profile band on a high, you know, high-profile tour and stuff. So he was managing to do all that. Jimmy, right, obviously, right, they're they're locking horns in a big way. And now Paul and Linda love it on the farm, right, up in Scotland, right, but maybe Jimmy doesn't, right? And the roadies are all bored and all this sort of stuff. And so that's really where it comes to head, right, because Jimmy's wild, right? So Jimmy, I mean, there's this like this egg smashing incident and stuff like that, you know what I mean? Where he smashes up all these eggs and stuff and yeah i think it was it was on the cards really wasn't it i mean jimmy was looking for him he gets a call for Steve Marriott doesn't he right who's definitely more his vibe let's get wasted and make rock and roll you know whereas it's maybe you know the domestic thing that Paul and Linda and her stuff had jimmy didn't fit into that anymore no. so you I mean i think there was musical differences by that point as well you know what it's like we're not getting our share here but then, yeah. I mean, they get tracks on the records and yeah. stuff like that. They even sing tracks on the records and stuff. So, no, I think it was just, it was a bad fit, basically, wasn't it? I okay. mean, you can imagine. I mean, if it's like if you're living with your wife and kids right on a farm, right? You don't want this wild guy getting pished and smashing up your eggs. <laughs>
0: it's the last thing you want. It's the last thing you want.
1: So I was like, Jimmy, you're out.
0: He's me. gone he's yeah. gone exit <laughs> exit stage left Jim McCullough um so as we move toward the the end of our conversation now Wings Mark 3 uh, which is uh, I, I don't know why but I've got a little bit of a particular fascination with this line I, I probably shouldn't do really Paul recruits shall we say Lawrence Juba and Steve Holly essentially session musicians I suppose are the, is the best kind of description of them and they recall back to the egg which you know if we talk about weird records earlier on in that conversation. If we're if we're talking about really weird records, I think back to the eggs up there. Um, even though I I personally I think it's it's a really strong record, but it's not that well remembered now. It's not a, you know, it, it's it's not got an archive release as as, as we're talking now. Um, as yet, uh, it's a little bit um forgotten maybe. Um, I, I was wondering whether or not you thought that's a, a reputation that was deserved you know do you think Back to the Egg is one of those ones that is a, is a lost classic like, like Ram turned out to be?
1: No <laughs> I, think, okay. uh, I think with that record it's uh, it's not really sure what it wants to be I think it's trying to be too many things all, all at the same time right and not quite hitting them you know I mean it wants to be an art rock record but the art rock's not that great you know uh, it wants to sort of step in line with the new wavy stuff, you know, I mean, there's a couple of tracks, one or two tracks that, I mean, I can't remember what they're called, right, that are, like, squeezy, right, which you would think, yeah, he could probably recognise someone in squeeze and say, maybe it should be sounding a bit more like that or what. But it does have a barrel through me on it, right, which is a, the lost classic, right? And it's, I mean, I just love that tune, right? I mean, I think it's absolutely ace. And he's obviously, what is he obviously... But it is a Hall of Notes, they were around, obviously, at that point, but I don't think they actually sounded too much like that at that point. It's just a great soul track. I love it. Yeah. I, yeah. And for me, that's the only reason that I would ever dig that record, being honest with you, right?
0: Fair enough. I, I think Getting Closer is, for me, a, is, is fantastic. That's that, I suppose that's a kind of uh, new wavy... Song uh, a yeah. little bit, but then he, he talks about salamanders and stuff in it, which you know is a bit is a bit strange, really. um
1: Yeah, it's not quite sure. And also, I think with the that Mark Three lineup of the band, I mean, not I mean, they're great musicians, the pair of them and stuff like that, but they lack a bit of character, maybe,
0: maybe you know. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I agree. um I was going to just come on to that. Obviously, you, you know, you spoke to Lawrence uh, for for the book. Did you get any sense from them that he was? You know, he, Paul spoke in previously that another lineup of wings. You could sense he was getting tired. You, could, you know, even on that live footage from the '79 UK tour, um, you know, again, as you say, musicianship-wise, they're spot on. You know, and obviously Denny Lane's still, still there, chugging away. You know, cl- clinging on for dear life somehow. And, and you know, he's there for the whole, the whole journey. Um, but you did you get a sense from from Lawrence and, and from anyone else from around that time that? Paul's heart kind of wasn't really in it by this point.
1: Not from them whatsoever. You know, they would just like, I'm in a band Paul McCartney, right? This right. is great. And guess what? We're going to Japan.
0: Or oh, so, so they thought.
1: That's what <laughs> broke the band up, really. That's what broke the band up was all that stuff. And yeah, again, who knows? I mean, I would have asked him, because everybody's fascinated by it. I mean, and also, it's like half a pound of weed. You know what I mean? That's a lot of weed, man. You know what I mean? And obviously, they just wrecked the band. And he, I mean, Paul doesn't know really why he did it, he'd, you know. And I think Lennon was right, actually, because what he said at the time, obviously Lenin was following all this in the Dakota, right? He's following all, reading all the news, all the newspapers all spread out. He's watching the TV, all this sort of stuff. And I mean, obviously there's a bit of Schadenfreude going on there. Right? But also uh, it's probably concerned for his buddy, you know. He mm-hmm. wants to mate, you know, even if you... A bit of strange for your mate. You know, we you want your mate in, in Choki in Japan, right? You know. And Lennon said he just didn't think he'd get steps. That's yeah. what it was. Yeah. And Paul did say that thing, which is probably everybody knows. You know, the, the, the customs guy that opened the thing sort of picked up this jacket, saw this huge bag of weeds, right? And then put the jacket back on top of it right? because he knew, obviously, it's just like. Yeah. And then, obviously, I mean, do you imagine what's flashing through this guy's mind? It's like, I've got to arrest a beetle here. Right? I've got to, you know, alert the authorities to the fact that this guy's got a mammoth bag of weed. Right? Mm. So mm. I think, you know, just to go back to your point, I think, yeah, that's what did for the bands. Because that's right. was it, wasn't it? You know, yeah. That's what did for the bands. You know? I think they rehearsed, actually, again after that, didn't they? They did. I think after something like that, Sort of watershed moment, isn't it? Mm. And obviously, focus your, your mind in a way. It's just like, am I happy doing this? And obviously, it didn't tour for 10 years really after that, you know. So,
0: do you put any credence to the slightly wild online theory um, that Yoko had some involvement in, uh, in Paul getting searched on that day?
1: Well, it's like it's, it's kind of trying to paint her as the witchy queen of Japan, you know. Don't think so. I mean, yeah. which theory really is going to work best, you know what I mean? That she was somehow pulling the strings or that a guy opened the suitcase, right? With a massive bag of weed in it, right? You know what I mean? It's like, I'm not much of a conspiracy theorist. I think it's the latter, really, you know? I think actually, just thinking on my feet here, that theory is instantly disproved by what Paul said about the guy's reaction. He went to hide it, didn't he? Right? Yeah. So if it was a setup. He wouldn't have done that. He would have been, aha, look <laughs> at this. I've, I've been tipped off by the witchy queen of Japan that you have got half a pound of dope on you, you know, what yeah. I mean? and you're going to choke you. So actually, yeah, there we go. We've unearthed that. We've disproved that theory, I think, in this podcast
0: show. Brilliant, Tom. Fantastic. <laughs> if if I've achieved nothing else, then, then that will be my legacy. To conclude, uh, I wanted to kind of sum up the, you know, your kind of feelings about those 10 years in, in Paul's life and obviously the writing of the book did you get any sense from when you spoke to him or from the people that you spoke to that, that were around him, that he felt any kind of sadness or or regret at the fact that Wings had, had broken up? Um, and do you think he had any regret about some of those choices that he made through the seventies, you know, things like looking back and Mary had a little lamb or, you know, things like that. All, there's all sorts of self-sabotage, you know, things like, London Town, which is a, was a much softer sound and didn't build on that success and not putting Goodnight Tonight on Back to the Egg, you know, the, 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 all of those things kind of came together. Did you, know, did, did you get any sense that he had any kind of uh, regret or, or thoughts about that?
1: It's funny, actually, because in one of the interviews, he was talking about the fact that he'd been listening through loads of the 70s stuff, right? right? And what was the word that he used? A bit, yeah, he says, yeah, and I thought, yeah, someone was a bit dubious. And I said, so like what? And he went, I'm not damning myself, which is fair enough. right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, because then, I mean, if he says, well, actually, of course, Mary Little L- L- Lamb mental or whatever, right? Then, yeah, nobody's ever, ever, ever going to take it seriously. I mean, some people like that record, you know. You know, the video's hilarious, obviously, right? But, uh, but I think that, yet again, even though he hates it, it plays into his sort of eccentricity, but also just the fact he does whatever he wants.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: He just does whatever he wants. And he did say that, it's like, you know, The next record I make, you know, I want to really, you know, whether the last one was big or not, won't really have any bearing on what i do next. Mm. And you think that, that's actually true, right? Because he never really tries to repeat a success, does he, you know? Because otherwise, the first McCartney album would have been stuffed full of hits. Yeah. It would have been, wouldn't it? You know, I mean, that would have been, it was like, wait a minute, we've just come off the bat of Abbey Road. That was the biggest selling Beatles record in America for years and stuff. I'm going to absolutely show these guys right that I was that band but he doesn't you know he's got tunes where he's like you know we're firing uh, arrows at a board and stuff like that you know which ain't going to be number one in America you know but potentially so he obviously any artist right will look back over their catalogue and go that one was Good that one, not so good. Well, but I mean, I interviewed Kate Bush once. Sort it no. sounds like like clang, but it's very it, good it. point, right? That she said that the only reason that she knew she was getting better at making records because was because she was less disappointed in them, mm. which is an interesting thing, right? Because everybody obviously we her just thinks she's a genius. Everything that she does is amazing, right? And she's gone, oh God you know, snare sound, that's crap, or, you know, that sort of stuff, so it's it's that critical thing, and he was moving so fast, mm-hmm. and acting on his whims mm-hmm. throughout the 70s, right, that it'd be really surprising if he didn't look back and go, Phew, I'm not sure that was a good idea, but he wasn't going to tell me, that's for sure, right? Yeah. Uh, and I think just in general with the 70s, I did ask him, it's like, you know, when you look back at that period, what do you think? And he said, v- yeah, vindication and stuff like that, but it's like, I survived it, which is the really important thing, you know, because it's just, just because he'd been in the Beatles and stuff like that, you know, we were talking earlier about the 80s and how far the stock had fallen, right? Mm. He, he could have nosed that by 72, man, you know? I mean, this, mm. it's easy to see this on hindsight, you know, but I mean, people didn't think it was a, a career, like a long-term <laughs> career, did they? they yeah. You know what I mean? So, yeah. so in a way, if you think about it through that lens, looking back at some of the weirder choices that he made, kind of got to be more commendable. He's always painted as this sort of careerist, you know, and he's clearly not because, I mean, if he was tr- trying to be a careerist, he would have made these records that were, you know, solid gold Beatles-style, mm. here we go, all the, mm. way the top most sort of records. So that's why his 70s are fascinating, really, because they're, they're a, a real patchwork of hits and misses and scratching your head mentalness, you know, and and as I say, the whole book was just the idea that, whoa, right, he's this complete renegade, really. And to follow him through that journey, especially when it was sort of counter to the popular narrative, was what I thought would work in a book, you know. So, hopefully it did.
0: Hopefully it certainly did. did. It absolutely <laughs> did. Uh, well, Tom, thanks so much for your time. I've had a really fabulous hour uh, chatting with you.
1: Cheers, Joe. Thank you very much.
0: No problem.